Hello and welcome to the Courage to Be podcast, where we explore how to raise your game, lean into discomfort and have more impact and purpose. I am your host, Sinead Millard. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to season three of the Courage to Be podcast. I'm super excited to be back kicking off the season um, with Kiko Matthews. After facing a life-threatening disease, Kiko set herself the challenge of becoming the fastest woman to solo row across the Atlantic, unassisted, with no previous experience off rowing. As you'll hear in today's episode, halfway through Kiko's training, her brain tumour came back. And this for me, of course, is a story of inspiration, but also it's incredibly uplifting. I think you'll get a sense for Kiko's um, wicked sense of humour, particularly as we really relax into the conversation. There are many laughs and her capacity to really kind of look at things quite pragmatically and to hold things quite lightly, um, which is... Yeah, it's pretty inspiring. So that's all from me. I will hand you over to my conversation with Kiko. Kiko, you are very welcome. Thanks for having me. So on the 22nd of March 2018, you became the fastest woman to row the Atlantic solo and unsupported over 49 days, 7 hours and 15 minutes. Let's begin here. What inspired you to take on this huge challenge? Um, What inspired me? So... <laughs> an interesting question it's not very sort of it's not a very inspiring answer to be honest to begin with um <laughs> I was a paddleboard instructor in London and I was feeling like I needed to do something quite big I did a, a challenge I, I enjoyed it all like mini challenges or big challenges um and I was also very single and mum had this great idea that Prince Harry would be that I would we'd be so suited together I think Megan might have been on the uh on the scene but she wasn't really that like prominent person quite yet I was like yes what a great idea how do I get his attention and I was like I know what I'll row the Atlantic go solo and I'll go for world record and if I raise money for one of his charities then I'll bound I'll get in I've been bound to get an invitation to uh to meet him <laughs> so that was kind of like the start uh it turned out there was actually something else going on but um, we can talk about that later um that was making me crazy enough to think that it was possible which it was possible but I guess it's not a normal person's kind of thought um and then sort of half well midway through my training I decided to change to something a bit more uh meaningful and it was about women uh empowering women and girls and showing showing us and others that we can do whatever we want to if we put our mind to it and also if we work together and we support each other so my funding for the boat project itself was women only and girls and schools and stuff like that and I decided to raise money for the hospital who'd saved my life. Two things did you meet Prince Harry? No. Oh okay uh well it's quite a big adventure it wouldn't have surprised me. No however I did have a photo in country life of me not wearing very many clothes and uh, it was the boxing day issue so I'm pretty sure that he will have opened up his country life on boxing day as has seen me with not many clothes on <laughs> even better even better <laughs> so without knowing it he has met me in a sense yeah 
Uh, I love it. And then going back a little bit, so you touched on something else behind um, this drive to take on this adventure. Can you um, share this experience or this diagnosis with the audience? Yeah, so 2009, I was teaching. um, I was changing schools. I was in Dorset and I wanted to come to London. There's a recurring theme in my life. I was basically thought that all I thought the like streets were paved with Prince Prince Charmings, um, and that I would find a nice man in. That was in two thousand nine, like I said. Um, so I got myself a job in Surrey, which was kind of closer to the big city and the high life. And I couldn't sleep at night. I was so excited. I was doing loads of exercise because I was kind of putting on a bit of. I got quite a few double chins, and I was like trying to get rid of them. It wasn't the sexiest look, and. Um, I was having a bit of electrolysis on my moustache. Um, actually went to get um, waxing, and the lady said, "Do you want me to do your face for you as well?" And I was like, "Oh, what? No, no, let's just stick to the <laughs> the moustache for the time being." Um, and I hadn't had my period for a few months, but I kind of someone said that that might be polycystic ovaries, and I was like, "Oh, it'll be fine. We'll just deal with it in due course." Um, and I went home for the summer holidays. <clears throat> I got this, these funny spots on my chest and back and face. And I'd also got this funny taste in my mouth. And so I said to dad, who was a GP, like, what's going on? He said, oh, you need to go and see your, go and see Steve, who's my doctor. Uh, first name terms. <laughs> and I uh, went to see him and re- mum said, oh, tell him you're a bit hairy and a bit podgy and a bit spotty. And like, cheers, mum. And went to the doctor. So I went to him and reeled off all of these things. I completely forgotten that I was going there for this taste. And then as I was leaving, I was like, oh, yeah, the, the reason I'd come was because I got this funny taste in my mouth. And he said, let's have a look. Right. OK, yes, you've got thrush, which is either HIV or diabetes, which I was like, hmm, interesting. Luckily, I had diabetes um, and not HIV because I don't know. I think that was probably the preferable out of the two. Uh, and went home and mum got on the internet and she had a little search and she was like you're not pregnant are you I said no she said oh well I think you might have Cushing's and dad was like don't be so ridiculous Cushing's is so rare mum said well she's definitely she reeled off all the symptoms which was psychosis mania memory loss um lump of fat on the back between right where your neck and your back join on your spine hairy spotty podgy skin thinning I had about three double chins and a relatively podgy tummy because my legs the muscle wasting in my legs had kind of made my legs really skinny and um osteoporosis uh bruising and the only thing I didn't have was uh stretch marks uh which made my dad like adamant that I hadn't got Cushing's because that is one of the the every 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 Cushing's patient patient has stretch marks except for me. Um, so, mum, luckily, mum's ex boyfriend who dumped her f- for his work for his job, he was so keen on his medicine yeah. and not my mum, um, happened to be an endocrinologist down in Kings. So we gave him a call. Well, dad gave him a call, and uh, uh, three weeks later, I think he was on holiday. Three weeks later, I went down to hospital, had some tests. Um, he kind of just gave me some prodding and poking I'd had some tests in Hereford where my parents live so it kind of definitely looked like Cushing's and he it was so severe so quickly so it was like acute like rapid onset that I went to hospital straight away whereas most Cushing's patients that I met someone the other day who'd had it for like 15 years 
and it, like, it was impossible to diagnose because it was so slow and everything but mine was so uh yeah so rapid and so extreme so quickly that it was actually quite good because it meant it was very easy to um to see what was going on so I was straight into hospital where I um started my treatment so to speak yeah well what did your treatment look like um lots of tests to begin with all these sort of funky things and stuff because because it's hormones and you just need to be very careful I think that because you can have it on your adrenal glands you can have it on your pituitary or you can have something called ectopic which would be on your lungs I think which would cause the same a similar thing so they just had to make sure they got the right the right diagnosis and then two and a half weeks after hanging around waiting for a spot on the chopping table um I was going in I had a test from the anesthetist did a blood test and said sorry uh, your potassium levels are so critically low that we need to send you to intensive care which is so weird because you're like totally awake I wasn't really with it because I had memory loss and psychosis so I was kind of with it so I knew what was going on but not really to the point where like I should have been in intensive I didn't feel like I should have been in intensive care um after intensive care I had some big massive great big syringe full of potassium pumped into me because if you don't have enough potassium your nerves don't fire and then your heart stops and then you don't have it it won't be you can't get jump started basically so um that was not much fun because they couldn't find my veins they're like rummaging and with a needle like in your neck and in your groin and like mm. couldn't find it. it was wow. horrible um and then mm. I sort of after a week I was back to what I needed to be for the operation they went up my nose took out it was a six millimeter tumor plugged it back up again back to my hospital bed had a bit of um another type of diabetes on top of the one that I already had which is a different one which is like a weeing constantly one because your uh, pituitary gland is where that controls your um your weeing and they've kind of been fiddling in there so it kind of gets disturbed and I also had a bit of a brain fluid drip coming out my nose so I don't think they'd quite packed it they hadn't quite sealed it properly so I just had to wait for that to which is also really delightful <laughs> um so I had to wait for that to to kind of heal which was about six days I think with that and then off I hopped out I went and started my new job in four four months later I kind of thought I would be going back straight away and I'd kind of said to them oh I might be a few weeks late <laughs> the doctor's like no 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 January at the earliest um you don't realize it's a bit like having a drug that's suddenly removed you've had these like really high cortisol levels pumped around your body and every cell in your body is like used to having that high level and also becomes sort of becomes immune to it a little bit and then if you take it out that tumor not only does your body stop producing it for a while but also it needs extra than most people so you have to be quite careful that you take the right amount of um hydrocortisone and that you don't like overdo it too much and go into cortisol shock or the opposite of cortisol shock like not enough cortisol so yeah that was that wow that was that you're incredibly <laughs> matter of fact about it all it's, well, that's it's incredible and <laughs> that's what it I, lo- I love the de- I love the descriptions so this was back in 2009 and then yeah. so what what does life look like after this like does this start to shift how you kind of view things how you want to live your life did you you know people talk about kind of post-traumatic growth was that something you experienced um so I obviously hadn't really realized that I just I kind of 
I don't know, I was in this new job, so I was like, cool. But I was also really, my body was tired and my brain was quite tired as well because I probably wasn't on quite the right amount of drugs and I kept trying to take myself off it because I didn't really want to be the sick person. Um, so I, uh, probably about after, I had a little bit of depression. I didn't really want to go out. That much. I just didn't have the energy. You know, you don't have the energy to go out and all of that sort of stuff. It was a bit like that. I wouldn't say it was like depression, 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 but definitely couldn't really be bothered with having a fun 30-year-old life. But um, then we kind of sorted that out, and I was like, oh, I should really just be living my life. I didn't really like my job that I was in. And I thought, oh, well, I shouldn't really be here, so might as well. And it's a great excuse when you tell your parents that you don't want to, you know, pursue your career, and you're going to go and disappear off to Africa and do another kind of, I don't know, another year out. <laughs> Because what they you just say to them, well, you know, I shouldn't be here, so don't complain. And that was basically <laughs> the answer that they got. Um, so off I went to, I joined a trip in Africa, project in Africa. Ended up staying there, learned to paddleboard. There's some more boy stories in there as well, but it gets embarrassing after a while. Um, learned to paddleboard, came back to the UK, didn't go quite to plan. Well, I mean, I never really have plans, to be fair, but it wasn't quite as... I'd, I don't know, I managed a bar in Zanzibar. It was quite a weird expat life. I don't know if I've set out for the expat life. Um, and then came back, set up a paddleboard company and a charity. The charity didn't really work, but the idea was I was giving back. And actually, I was a lot more, I was a lot happier when I was doing things for other people and enjoying. So I was kind of like being selfish by enjoying my life, but then giving back as a kind of thank you, I suppose, to the people and planet uh yeah actually and, and I on that on that Kiko like I read a little bit about your charity called Big Stand yeah and it's inc- incredibly inspirational could you give us a little bit of an insight into that um and also how you became known as a guardian angel of Hackney <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah so the Big Stand basically I met this very I thought he was very lovely good looking guy who wanted to paddle stand up paddle the Atlantic and I was like oh that sounds cool you need to do it for a charity. I also quite fancied him. So why don't I help you with your project of stand up paddling the Atlantic? And I'll set up, we'll set up a charity. I'll do that. And it'll be based around paddleboarding, adventure, environment, education, community. There's one other thing. I can't remember what it was. But the idea is that we take people for paddleboard adventures or trips. And it would all be about growing your confidence and educating them on the environment and connecting with it and all this stuff. So that was the big stand. And I did all the setup of it I wrote it all and it was just such hard work and we didn't have any money it wasn't like we were coming at it from any amount of kind of funding I was also having to work a full-time job I had to go back to teaching because the lovely boyfriend wasn't very good with money so I was basically funding his life I was working on his project I was setting up the charity and I was doing my teaching I kind of got to the point where I was just like oh so I set up a paddleboard business because I realized that actually there was no red tape in that and you can still do all the great things that you want to do with the charity, but just through a business. And I could just donate the boards to charity events or I could just educate people while I was taking them for, you know, sessions and lessons. And I could do paddle and picking up litter as I went and people could get involved. So I did that and ended up in Hackney and Richmond, two completely opposite (laughs) poles of London in, in all aspects. Um, and on the canals were just so revolting and hackney that um, I started just collecting. I was actually picking it out of the canal because I was embarrassed that people were paying to come for a paddleboard lesson. 
and there was like nappies and plastic and this and that everywhere. So I just kind of softly pick it up and put it on my board. And rather than people asking for their money back, it, people actually um, started copying me. And I was like, oh, this is cool. We should do something out of this. So the people, it's called the, what's it called, Moo Canoes. They got like a cafe on a boat down there where I was kind of working out of. I said, why don't we do this thing called like, what about trash retreats where you collect a bucket of trash and then you get a treat from your cafe? And they were like, yeah, great, cool. So we did that. We had um, trash retreats. It was a bit cheaper than a normal lesson. You collected a bucket, so you spent your hour and a half at the end of the day collecting a bucket, and then you got something that was left over in the cafe, like a coffee, an ice cream, or something that they got, which was cool, and everyone felt great. I felt great. The people doing it, and yeah, people would go, oh, you're such an angel. You're like the, you're like the angel of Hackney Wick uh, collecting <laughs> rubbish. I'd be like, it's actually really, really therapeutic, and everybody who did it, loved it and I was like this is just so cool that everyone is just really it becomes like a treasure hunt you know and who can get the most and who can get the weirdest piece and you know can you bend down and turn around and you're trying to get it and then it disappears away from you you've got to go back and you've got to like it's the fight against the you know the bottle that's running away from you all the time um so yeah it's quite it's actually quite good fun the filthy dirty canal yucky water that sort of like drips down your leg at the end of each day is really a bit rank <laughs> and wasn't much fun and I always think of canal water on a Saturday night <laughs> but um, I felt super good about I felt really good about myself I felt happy I was part of the community I was doing something good people enjoyed the brand and what we were doing and business was going really well I was just on a bit of a high I just was like this is so cool I get up at five o'clock in the morning I drive across London because I was living in um, Rains Park at the time southwest and I was driving east so I get up really early in the morning and sweet little man once gave me some flowers in a in the garage I don't know why he'll I just probably I think when you're like really happy you just radiate happiness and giving and all, all that sort of stuff and this man was like oh you just look like a really lovely person here's a bunch of flowers I was like oh that's sweet of him um so all these little like lovely things would always happen and it was just such a nice nice thing to be doing but I did feel a bit like I just couldn't see how this was going to develop to me being retiring at 60 as a paddleboard instructor in Hackney. You know, I couldn't see the transition. I just couldn't see the path and how that was working, which didn't really matter. And where, yeah, where did you go from there, Kiko? Then mum thought that Prince Harry would be a a good boyfriend. And I was like, what? Yeah, well, this is a great (laughs) opportunity. And actually the paddleboard guy had sort of, I'd moved on a little bit from him and let him get on with his things. I realised that he was probably draining me rather than anything else. But, you know, he'd given me this introduction to this rowing man. So his boat, his paddleboard, the Atlantic, looked very similar to the boat that I ultimately used. Um, And that's when I was like, oh, you know, I've I've been single for about 11 years at this point, like properly single. Not, I'd had boys come and go, but I hadn't really had the, like, proper relationship and I was like oh it's about time I did something that people would that the boys and Prince Harry would notice me I mean I <laughs> the worst thing for a man to think oh that's so sexy it's like oh she's bloody scary <laughs> so I did <laughs> the most like unfeminine ungirly thing that you could possibly imagine but anyway it turned out after I'd kind of changed my story from Prince Harry and you know I've been trying to get money from companies and they were like well that's a joke you know she's never rowed before she's never been to sea like who rows 
who's solo rose even now people don't believe like can't get their head around it so you imagine doing it at the start of a campaign when you are nobody and you know, you've never done anything like this before in your life and this woman has just sent you a powerpoint saying that you've got a sponsor they were like no you're right thanks so that's when I was like I'm gonna do it but I need to and I kind of thought about how women in my life have been so important and all my friends and all my phone book was all girls even though I kind of loved boys and and that sort of thing it was actually my it was actually the girls who I always sort of turned to and they were the ones that I had chats with when things weren't great and they were the ones who supported me so I was like oh why don't I do it about why don't I get women just to support me and also you can kind of show girls that you know we are as great as men are and we can do things especially when we work together so, you know, we might not be as physically strong but if we work together and we support each other actually it kind of strengthens your mental side of things which then ultimately kind of enables you to get through things so it was all about women and then I thought I'd raise money for the hospital to say thank you because if it wasn't for them I wouldn't be here and it was such a transition from like barely being able to get up the stairs when I was ill and you know being intensive care to now attempting to, to row a 400 kilo boat or 350 kilo boat across the Atlantic on your own um yeah. in search of Prince Charming but uh what happened was it's now very clear why I had this great idea in May, mum was, I'd actually done some, I was like overtaking, I was on, had a mountain bike, I was overtaking men on my bike when I was training and I was getting like some seriously good rowing times considering I didn't really do a huge amount of training and I hadn't rowed before, I was pretty strong and mum said, oh I think you should go back to the doctors before you set off and I was like, oh don't be silly, she's like, no I think you should and I was actually, oh I was getting up really early in the morning, the world was pretty amazing and I was thinking and I was, I had a, maybe a double chin or two maybe one just this time so anyway, I went back to the doctors and did some tests and yeah my cortisol levels were high they did a brain scan and they found my tumor had returned so basically the tumor that had come back eight years later was making me high enough on life to think that rowing an ocean on my own was perfectly <laughs> achievable and that Prince Harry would fall in love with me and actually all along it probably wasn't it probably wouldn't have ever crossed my mind if it hadn't been for the the high the elevated levels of cortisol thanks to the second tumor um so yeah that was kind of like it was so weird because it was I was kind of talking about it all on social media and it's like this is why I'm doing it and then suddenly it was like a little like uh, twist in the story <laughs> I think that it's come back again and it was, it was so bizarre because it was kind of unfolding in front of all the people who were supporting me it was almost like I kind of knew it was happening and I kind of faked the story it was like it was like it, that's what it kind of came across as maybe but it was totally legit. <laughs> totally legit like who could have written this ridiculous story anyway um I said to the doctors they needed to be a bit chop chop quick quick about it because I was rowing the Atlantic in six months for or seven months at the time for the hospital so they kind of looked at me as to say yep <laughs> yeah she's definitely got Cushing's again um I think they kind of knew by that time they knew my personality and they were like I think she's gonna do it whether <laughs> whether we take it out or not so we'd probably probably be safer if we take it out now so they were really good they took it out um I think they think I'm a bit of a joke down at the hospital um and uh, I was there in the hospital for three days rather than a month like last time the tumor was only four millimeters rather than six so it's a real tiny tumor it's not cancerous but just pumping up these this cortisol um and yeah I got back to training I was think I was walked up a little hill where my parents lived called the Black Mountains up there uh, four days afterwards I did a 
very gentle 100 kilometer bike ride one afternoon which was 10 days later and then I couldn't do any heavy lifting or because your nose feels all blocked up it's like having a massive sinus like pain and um yeah got back to training I kind of end of October I was like oh screw this I ain't got enough money didn't really feel like I was I was basically making excuses for not wanting to go but apparently it's very normal to have that little blip and some <laughs> my, my my lovely Irish gay mate um he's a, a boy and he's about one of the only boys who I don't haven't fancied <laughs> and he said I don't, I don't even want to attempt the accent because it's embarrassing he was like oh keep cool just grow some balls and I was like, okay. <laughs> and it was all right for him to say that because I felt like he was allowed to say it. He's also rode the Atlantic solo. I was like, okay. So I put the phone down and I was like, he was like, get over it. And so I got over it and I grew some balls that night and um, set back a, set back on my, which was quite an ironic thing to say when it was all about empowering women. <laughs> but I took it. I was like, that's fine. I have it. All I needed was for someone to give me that push. And back on track and February the... I mean, you probably know better than me because I've forgotten it. February the 2nd, I think it was the 2nd or was it the 1st? can't quite remember. Um, I left. I have, I, have the, yeah, I have the end date of the 22nd of March. Yes, so. well, that's I thought it was the 23rd, yeah. so yeah. You're, better, you're better informed than I am. <laughs> um, and, yeah, I left Grand Canaria. I, I mean, I thought I was ready to go. <laughs> I'm not sure that my trainer, the guy who was training me, thought I was ready to go, but he, he set me off. I said goodbye to everyone. Um and off I rode. Off you rode, but I have to say, like, I loved your book, which is, for anyone listening, Kiko, How to Break the Atlantic Record After Brain Surgery. Um, and I actually used to read it at night, and it was like escapism, and I felt it was just the simplicity of see, eat, row, sleep. And I was almost, like, feeling high when the winds were good for you, and it, just, yeah. it was all just really it enjoyable. Yeah, uh, uh, but I have to say, I, I just, I've jotted down a few favorites that I'd love you to elaborate on. Oh, and I think you know, <laughs> just on day on day one, I just loved this, setting off in Gran Canaria, an hour in, you realized you left your medication at home. And just just take us maybe to that point, because there's a lovely story behind that. Yeah, I think the um, the funny thing about this is I think it just sums, everyone just said that it just sums you up completely. So I basically rode off, said goodbye to everyone. It was all a bit like, you know, mum and dad were flapping around and I just wanted to go quietly and just sort of disappear into the ocean and um, with not making much fuss, which is very, again, very ironic because I'm kind of doing the biggest fuss making thing you can probably talk, like, imagine, and I just want to go quietly. Um, and I said goodbye and then I was just about to take my afternoon meds or something. I was like, oh, shit, I've left my medication in the fridge. <laughs> so I was like, phoned them, I was like... Angus, who's the guy who was having, I've left my medication in the fridge. Can you get someone to come and get it for me? And he was like, yeah. He was like, oh, Kiko, this is like so typical. You know, the most important thing, the one thing that's keeping me alive <laughs> out on the ocean, I've left in the fridge because that's what my illness, like, you know, is to me. I really am a bit blase about the whole thing. Uh, anyway, no one would come and give it to me so it was too windy. So I had to row back. Um, uh, and the cleaner had found it and given it to the pub. So I had to go to the pub. I actually had a pint and some fish and chips and uh got my medication went back to the boat and at three o'clock I left and I actually I don't know if mum is happy by me saying this but I I left on my own it was actually kind of the way weirdly it was the way I'd wanted to go in the first place was just like quietly and I just said goodbye to it was some man I'd been chatting to who came and said goodbye to me and and I just carried on rowing mum and dad were in the aeroplane on their way home and just kind of saw Grand Canaria disappearing 
this, it's such a bizarre feeling like you spent 18 months working towards this point and you were just rowing yourself into oblivion and <laughs> into your like you're, you're rowing yourself onto your deathbed as far as you could you know you may be mm. but you just got 3,000 miles to row and it's like see ya wow and the reality of like just being at sea so when you know Gran Canaria was no longer visible all the preparation was finished which I'm sure was immense and time consuming what's it like what you know what what are you thinking when you're like right this is it I'm here oh, me and the ocean such a relief to be gone and be underway because you just talked and breathed it the amount of people you have to tell the story to now I just have to tell people the different story but at the time, it was like, oh, this is what I'm doing, and this is the like, oh, that's so. And then you've got to do emails, and you've got rejection, and then you've got excitement, and then you've got tiredness. You've got all of this like whole wealth of, am I going to do it? Am I going to get enough money? Then you have a little bit of brain surgery in the middle, and it's all kind of this up and down. So when you're actually going, you're just like, oh, I don't really. And because I was so ignorant of what was to come, because I've never been to sea, it was almost like a blessing in disguise, in disguise, um, or how you're going to feel, or any of that sort of stuff. I was just like, oh. And then, and then you realise after a week that you've been rowing and the excitement, <laughs> the excitement's over. You're like, oh my god, I've barely moved on the map, <laughs> and you've still got, you know, you're only a seventh of the way. You don't know how far away you are in terms of time because you always don't know when you're going to finish. But, yeah, yeah, of course. And I guess from from reading the book, you know, I got a really s- strong sense of some of the highs and the lows and the emotions and the moods. Can you, if you were to kind of just give us a snapshot of some of the highs and lows where you know what would you share um so there was just times when the the it must there must have been some the currents aren't the major thing out there it's more the wind but there must be currents because sometimes it felt like lead and the wind would be quite strong so you, there was obviously something happening underneath the boat but there would be times when it would all be perfect and you'd have like a good song would come on your my i my i picked the worst play like music you could imagine I hadn't really spent much time on it and it was horrific it used to kill me I like got <laughs> you know 100 best classical hits and 100 best power ballads <laughs> and some old stuff that just happened to be left on my phone anyway occasionally I'd get a good one this girl is on fire um which is awesome <laughs> when the waves and the wind and the sun was setting and it was all going perfectly and you were just like I am flying <laughs> and you'd be like that's incredible and at the end of the day I'd always sort of get off my seat and shake my bum and have a look at the because you're rowing into the sun in the evening so you'd have to get up to have a look at the sunset I kind of look around and be like this is so every night I find it was like bizarre as you could imagine because you're in the middle of this vast ocean and you haven't seen anyone for like six seven ten days <laughs> um and that was always quite cool to think that you'd actually got there and you'd done a day's work and then you kind of had the polar opposite of when the wind was going in the wrong direction or, um, you know, there was no waves or something kept breaking or you were just so knackered. There was kind of a point where, because I was on medication from my surgery, the doctors were like, well, we don't really know how you're going to react because no one's ever done anything like this before. You're, you know, we're a bit in the dark as you are, but if you take four times as much as you would on land normally, that should be fine but we no one really knows whether that was fine or not so I was kind of just taking four times as much of my hydrocortisone and I just like there was I can't remember you know better because it's in the book felt like two at about around two weeks between two and three weeks and I just couldn't get into a shift pattern because I was so knackered and I would just go to sleep at night time and I just couldn't be bothered to get up and I'd be like oh I'm 
you know, at least I'm in the boat moving and no one else has decided to do this. And, you know, even if I don't get the record, it doesn't matter. I'm just going to go back to sleep. because I was in such a sort of, I physically couldn't move my body. I'd kind of lift my arm up to get my medication and that'd be about as far as I could go. And then I'd take some more of that and a shot of like some caffeine shot and I'd go back to sleep and then wake up like two hours later and start again. So, and it was a little bit, and it just, everything is just so exaggerated. So the good day, the good times are like, woohoo, and the bad times are like, but the great thing is you can't do anything about, you can't like stop and get off and have a strop about it. You know, you have to just get on with it and just to keep rowing and just, I guess, just know that it's going to pass and that at some point in the, future the wind will be better and we'll have a good day or a little bird will come and visit you or some dolphins or you know something will happen in that boat or in your immediate environment or you'll get an email from someone or you know quite often I would chat to myself on my they're making they're doing a documentary so I do like chats chats to the phone <laughs> after I'd <laughs> chatted away for an hour and a half on the, the poor documentary people I normally feel a bit better about myself after that so I've talked myself out of whatever was but it's all wasn't really didn't really exist you know it wasn't like real at all your brain just kind of plays it's just tiredness basically yeah yeah incredible I remember like something you said in the book you said the moods change so quickly depending on how you think of a situation yeah or what pops into your head and then I thought about this in our everyday life which of course it's the same thing right our moods are changing based on what we're thinking but you have the kind of clear perspective I'm assuming when you're out at sea just seeing how your thoughts are literally affecting your feelings so I'm interested like as you I want I want to go back to the sea because there's so much more there that I want to quickly just share with the audience and the experience of that but this analogy that okay what I choose to focus on and think about is inevitably going to kind of affect my mood or how I feel is this something that kind of stayed with you like do you feel you got a better understanding of this having been at sea for so long uh, I don't know. I don't know where it's kind of like, I think all these things are sort of progressive in life and kind of, an answer. so I've always had that. I've not always, but since I've been ill, I've always had a sort of, don't worry about anything because there's no point. If you could, if it, if you can change it, then change it. If you can't change it, then why are you worrying about it? Um, and then there's things like, you just can't just largely it was always about, it was pretty much just being tired and just having a little rest and going to sleep and and then but now kind of I've got my partner's has these weird and these weird sort of anxieties or these random moods that kind of pop up one day when he wakes up or you know his ex-wife will send him a message and it sends him into this little sort of spiral this downward spiral and you kind of when sometimes when you look at it from the outside and then you you hear what you say to them and then you think Oh, actually, yes, that's, that's exactly, you know, I'm behaving in exactly the same way. And it's very easy to kind of uh, feed, to feed that um, negative thought with negativity. So, uh, and it's difficult, it's interesting, because when you're on the ocean, you haven't got a huge amount of stuff to distract you from the bad thing, whatever that bad thing is. But at the same time, that bad thing really isn't that bad, because you haven't got anything to create that negativity but it's you kind of 
realize that it is all completely in your head because it's not like you've got people around you who are being horrible or your you know your day you've just been sacked or you know you haven't got enough money or what such as that because all you've got is your boat and your food which is fine you know something might break and you just have to get on and fix it or you know you might not go as fast as the great thing is you can't control so much when you're out at sea or when when I Mm. I think there's so little control that you are just like this little tiny thing in this vast ocean with weather and you know a boat there's certain things you can control like you can keep your boat clean and you can eat food and you can sleep properly and stuff like that but there's so many other things which you just like and you realize in life that you just have to stop trying to control things and wasting energy on controlling things you can't control and just manage the things that you do have some control of which will make your life that little bit easier I don't know if I'm making any sense And yeah, you're making total sense. And I think, you know, everything you say is very logical. It's almost like, you know, control the controllables and and the rest you got to let go. You know, how how much have you been able to bring that into your life to date? Like if you look at where you are now and how you live your life, um, you know, have obviously I'm sure this the reality and the logic of that was incredibly fresh and real kind of at sea and just after. But do you find yourself falling into kind of the usual patterns that we do as humans, which are getting caught up in trying to control the uncontrollables. Not really. Um, I think that I think it probably started from when I was ill and realizing I couldn't control it. So what was the point in trying to control mm. it? Like your body will do what it does, and the people around you will do. The only thing you control is the way that you behave. In my eyes, so if you behave in a certain way, that's what you'll get back. So if I control, um, you know. COVID, for example, can't go home because I'm stuck in, well, I wasn't stuck. I chose to stay in New Zealand rather than go home. Um, or, you know, someone treats you in a certain way. You can't control the way they treat you. All you can control is the way that you treat them back or how you perceive or how you interpret the way they're, they've controlled you. Or, you know, if your visa is taking longer or if your visa, if you don't get your visa, there's nothing you can do about it. Like, so there's no point it's just over time I think also because I've never I haven't done just like one job and stuck with the same thing and I haven't just gone and got myself a house and worked towards this kind of standard lifestyle so to speak I've always been a little bit like oh what's next and how do I overcome the fact that I now haven't got enough money to live somewhere or you know I don't really want to be there or this or this person is behaving I think the more you the more that I have got out there and been slightly sort of forged my own path mostly through mistakes <laughs> and learning and and things not going to plan you realize that actually you look back and you go oh that wasn't a very pleasant experience when that happened but look where I am now look what if you can actually connect how that negative thing that you maybe tried to control at the time that you never actually did control in the end but look where you are as a result of that that you can control where you go to next and you can control how you look at that thing but you can't necessarily control what it was. So if you just have, I just have the attitude. It's like, if someone's going to treat me like that, well, yeah, it doesn't feel very nice. And it's, you know, I might cry about it, might get upset about it, but normally at the end of the day, it's their issue. And am I behaving like in a way that um, is feeding that, is fueling that kind of negative feeling or am I behaving in a way that's kind of dampening that and is like squashing it? So someone's, you know grumpy towards you are you like oh hi do you want a cup of coffee do you have a biscuit like how's your day or are you like just going to ignore them because they're being grumpy you know it's the same they're behaving in the same way but how you react to that that's the right word isn't it react 
is um mm. is how your life then becomes what it becomes like you make it that but don't don't waste your energy trying to control things that you can't control because that energy is super important for you to do things for you to be well for you to be happy for you to go for a run for you to you know digest your food properly for you to you know manage and deal with situations which you all we, we know that when you're tired and you're low in energy everything is hard work so if you're just sitting there and you're trying to control stuff your brain is physically working overtime you're physically using energy that you should be putting towards something else so there's a, like a physiological aspect a physical aspect to trying to control situations which will drain you and if you can yeah. overcome that if you can train yourself you have to train it this is like mental health training you have to train yourself to do that um then you will have the more you have more energy to do the things that you really need energy for yeah I love that and I and I read in your book as well you said you were sandwiched between three siblings and encouraged and encouraged to be your own person has this also shaped your perspective because you really haven't like followed the status quo in terms of you know quote quote unquote what we should do and you know obviously you moved into teaching and teaching wasn't for you and you quickly moved on and I've kind of had this I'm getting this sense that having purpose was something that you were determined to have um and you know so I'm just interested in terms of your childhood and and being almost like I guess that middle child and that influence that that had on you my middle child attention seeking disorder (laughs) um so subconsciously there's definitely some of that where my brother and sister were like are like good looking they were popular they're good at school they're like you know did all the kind of they were cool they had everything like they were great and not saying that I wasn't going to be great but I obviously as a young child before I even could walk probably there was an element of you know I need to shout a bit louder or I need to be a bit weirder or I need to do something a bit different to get the attention of parents (laughs) because there's two others around who are equally as noisy or whatever and as time has gone by, like I went to three secondary schools, I had three years out, I had the, went to a university, left after two weeks, had a year out, went to university for two years, had a year out in the middle of university, went back, and I was determined that I was going to do better than them at university, so I just made sure I was better than them <laughs> at university, um, otherwise it would just be the same as them. Uh, and then I had a year out after university, I got engaged first, I got disengaged first, like I just there was obviously something there which was about just being different to them. Otherwise I would have been just them. And I didn't obviously didn't want to be just them. I wanted to be my own person. I think it's really fighting to be fighting to for my own identity, which would have not been my own identity if I hadn't done something completely different. Um, and and now my brother said the other day, he goes, Oh, I can't believe you've settled down. I never thought I'd see that. I said, Duncan, this is my brother. As soon as I get put in a box as a particular type or as a particular thing, like a teacher or an adventurer or a this or a that, I will escape that box because I do not want to be known as, I want to be known as Kiko, like that is my identity, not you saying that this is how I should behave and this is how I expect you to behave because then <laughs> then that expectation is like, you know, they figured me out and I'm like, no, something else is coming now. <laughs> so it's kind of like, I like to keep them on my toes and I think there's a, my sister said oh I can't believe you know so you over your like rowing the Atlantic uh, you know to get attention and all that sort of stuff and I was like <laughs> I wanted to get Prince Harry's attention and yeah I did in a way want to get attention but at the same time I also like I love 
I love a challenge. I love the unknown. I actually love like not knowing what's around the corner and kind of either learning from what's around the corner, i.e. if it doesn't go quite to plan or overcoming what's around the corner and being like, oh, that's one more thing now that I can do. That's another thing. And it's almost like ticking off boxes and of things that we are capable of that we don't allow ourselves to do because we box ourselves. Like people do, they say, oh, this is what I am. This is who I am. This is what I'm good at. And it's like, well, how do you know? You haven't tried all the other things. Like if you if you put yourself in that box and that is your identity, then you're done with experiencing all the other things that you might love or be incredible at or whatever. Um, and yeah, and I guess then for me, the purpose thing is really important just because, I mean, I'm a bit lazy really. <laughs> so having a purpose would actually gets me up and makes me do something for someone else. But I also think that, having a purpose I don't know it just gives you a reason to to not give up because for me it's like oh I've got someone you know I'm doing that for someone else I know it's weird because you can actually look at it the other way it's like if you're not doing it for yourself why would you bother but my mentality is I feel a lot happier in myself when I achieve something where I wasn't necessarily the center of that sort of achievement if that makes I don't know if that makes sense yeah no that makes perfect sense because I heard you say as well just you know those tougher moments at sea and just kind of knowing that there was that community of women that invested in terms of Mm. time and resource you that was almost that felt like your purpose yeah exactly yeah 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 and I loved actually your dad said on a a clip that I watched on your twitter which I loved which was the trailer um that was uh, produced before you went to sea and I think it was your dad who said well, she's be, always yeah. been one not to she's always been one not to follow the rules and you know, oh, that might yes. be my best friend Ruthie. She might have said that. Oh, okay, okay, like, yeah. We all want her to settle down, but you know she's not. And here I am settling <laughs> down because because everyone thought I was never going to settle down. So um, yeah, so it's all. I don't really know how I've come to be how I've come to be. It's not. I don't feel like I've had any like real drastic things happen in my life I know I was ill but I actually think that's a massive blessing in disguise because it gave me a kick up the arse to not carry on being a teacher and you know potentially not enjoying what I was doing for the rest of my life um maybe I'm a third child issue maybe it's something that I was born with who knows but I feel very lucky that I've come to this point where you know now nothing is really too nothing's too big a deal because I know you can't those things that are a big deal you can't control so you just have to let them go I was saying to my boyfriend let it go let it go and he hates it (laughs) (laughs) he goes yeah I know I've got to I've got to let it go you've got to let it go and then you it is it is the mental health training that so few people kind of I know we're not taught about mental health training but it's all about getting Mm. fit and you know going to the gym but actually what about the brain? Because that's way more important. And it's just little things, I think, that I just have managed to teach myself out of my life's life's experiences. One is not to worry, because what's the point? And don't try and control things if you can't control them. And those two things really save energy. The other thing is just, like, you can control yourself and your behaviour. So how are you behaving to others? And how are you behaving to the planet? And how are you behaving to yourself? You know, Um <clears throat> forgiveness and just being kind and doing things for other people and that kind of really just forms basically about it for me and then everything else like falls into place or 
you know, if it doesn't fall into place, it doesn't really matter because there'll be something else somewhere along the line that does fall into place that will be equally as good, if not better. Kiko, that takes us to a fab place. I don't even want to build on that because you've just left our audience with the, such a lovely ending. So thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening. If there's something that you've heard in this episode that has resonated with you, or perhaps you think it could benefit someone else, then please do share this link or start the conversation. If you haven't done so already, click on the subscribe button in your listening app. And as always, I really value your feedback. So please rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts. And for more information, full show notes, links and resources, you can pop over to my website, SineadMillard.com. See you next time back here on The Courage To Be.